Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open God's word with you. Let's ask for his blessing on this time, and then we'll dive right in. God, we just pray right now that you would open our eyes. Give us, give us eyes to see the truth that's in your text, and a text that's particularly hard to hear. Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate how these principles apply specifically to our lives so that we can go out and advance your kingdom. Lord, we confess that when we sin, we bring shame on your name. But God, we want to go make your name famous in the world. Lord, empower us through your spirit to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, open to... 1 Peter 2.13, we're going to spend our time in, in verses uh, 18, but we'll, uh, we'll, we're going to read this whole section to, to, to get the whole idea. Uh, this is part two, and next week we'll have part three, and we might be in the section for one more week, I don't know. <laughs> but we're just, we're trying to, to not drink milk from the word, but eat the meat. And some places, the meat's a little tougher to chew than others. In this section, I think we'll find that to be true. Um, the series that we're in is called Living for What Lasts, because we know that the only things that last are going to be the things we do to contribute to the kingdom of God. And we want to give our lives to these things. This, this is a continuation of last week's sermon about suffering. Last time we met and we looked at suffering at the hands of an evil government. This week, we're picking up in verse 18, and we're going to look at suffering as servants to a, to a master. And we live in the 21st century. We live in America. We don't have masters. But... We need to affirm this truth from 2 Timothy 3.16, 3, uh, 3, and it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. Do we believe that to be true, church? If we believe it to be true, we even have to look at how we apply the principles of suffering as a slave to our lives. So here's what's true. Even when we are mistreated, we can trust that God is working all things out for our good and for his glory. So what do we do with this? Follow Christ as your example in suffering in order to draw others to God and glorifying God by not returning evil for evil. So let's, let's pick back up in verse 13. Because like I said, this is a, a whole section, and I don't want to take any of it out of context. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brothers, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beating for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So next week, we're going to spend all of our time in verses 21 through 25. And you can treat that like Easter. We're just sharing the gospel. Next week is going to be all gospel. If you've got a friend that you've been working on as your one, Invite them next week. They're going to hear the gospel often. They're going to hear the gospel a lot. And, and you use that as Easter in the fall. But let's look at the context and the background of what's going on here. Remember, this is not being written to 21st century Americans. It's being written to 1st century Christians in the Roman Empire. Peter, he moves from addressing all Christians, how all Christians are supposed to operate under governments. And he, he then addresses a specific group of Christians, and that's Christians who are slaves, and how these Christians who are slaves are to conduct themselves. While we don't find ourselves as slaves, I believe we can apply these principles to our lives for the glory of God as we serve in our jobs, as we live under the authority of our parents, as we, as we live in all these spaces in life where someone is over us. So let's look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The ESV translates servants Maybe so that when we read this, it feels more um, relatable to us. But the word that's used here is a very specific word. It means household slave. That's who he's talking to, are slaves of the household. And while, again, we're not slaves, um, we, we may not find ourselves having to submit to, to masters this is a very relatable, to, re relatable message to the audience he's writing to. It's a, again, first century Roman audience, and in the Roman Empire, up to 30 to 40% of the entire population were enslaved peoples. So 
These people were definitely dealing with how to live as slaves in Christ. And there were a couple of ways you became a slave. One is uh, by conquest. Your, your people were conquered and they, they, they took you back home. Uh, another would be like you found yourself in debt. And slavery is not quite what we think, like when we think about the American South. So these slaves were, if, if you had a huge debt, you could still own your home and sell yourself into slavery and work that off while still getting paid, able to take care of your property. Like it's, it's not quite what you think of in some cases. In some cases, it's that exactly what you think of. Um, slavery, it was not uncommon for the slaves to be more educated than their masters. Again, 30 to 40% of the entire Roman world were slaves. It wasn't uncommon for slaves to own slaves. It was not uncommon for, like, the, 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 the paradigm of what you have is very, very different. Um, one of the most, the, 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 the slaves were often educated people who were educating the children formally. They were master craftsmen. Um, one of the most famous philosophers in history, his name's Plato. You know, you'll recognize Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. Plato, at one point in his life, was a slave. Like, slavery in the Roman world was just that common. Peter here, he's not addressing the master, but he tells Christian slaves how they are to relate to their unjust masters. Now, that seems unsatisfying because we live in America and it just feels wrong, right? But that's not who he's writing to. If you zoom out to the New Testament, you'll find Paul's letters. There he's addressing both slaves and masters. He tells them in the church there's no division between slave and master, slave and free. Uh, one of the New Testament letters that maybe you've glossed over, it's Philemon. It's a really interesting letter. So Paul's in prison. Paul makes a friend in prison. His name's Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave of Philemon's who has ran away. And Paul sends Onesimus back with this letter to the church, not specifically to Philemon. This is awkward. And this letter was to be read aloud where Paul is demanding that Philemon release Onesimus, the slave. Like, a little passive-aggressive, right? And so just this, the, the slavery in the church has created a weird dynamic. And the point that, that the New Testament is not making the point of um, cultural reform. It's not making the point of cultural revolutionary like what we might want it to. Instead, these are pastors writing to people who are struggling in their lives that they find themselves in. So that's they're, they're not trying to overthrow the system. However, you fast forward to uh, Europe and guys like John Newton, um, they use the principles they find in the New Testament as their grounds to overthrow slavery in the, in the modern world. So you have that, but that's not what the New Testament's doing. 
So last week, we ended with verse 17, and that says this. Honor everyone, love the brothers, fear God, honor the emperor. These are, these are four commands. And I think these four overarching commands will help us understand the context that we're reading in today. We've already dealt with honoring the emperor in last week's message. And now we're, uh, now we're dealing with submission and how it fits in honoring everyone as well as loving the brothers and fearing God. So let's look at verse 18 closely again. And we're going to break it down more this time. And the, the first real point is the essence of submission is trust. The essence of submission is trust. Verse 18 says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. The verb submit here is an imperative command. That's Peter commanding on behalf of God to his readers that they submit with all respect. It seems like strong language for, 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 for God to be using for this to be such a corrupt system, doesn't it? But the command here is for servants to obey their masters, to submit to their masters with, and this is key, all respect. So why would God want this? I think it flows out of verse 17. To respect, to honor everyone, honor God, and have love for the brotherhood. First, submission to one's master with all respect honors God. Our submission to the government and to whomever is in, over us has everything to do with honoring God. Let me say that again. Our submission has everything to do with honoring God. What kind of testimony would Jesus have to the master of the house if Jesus' new followers were bad servants and bad employees. The damage that that would do to the work in the name of Jesus among an entire class of people would have been horrible. And here's the thing. Jesus did not die for one class of people. Jesus died for all men. So remember, we made the case last week by submitting ourselves to those who are over us, we are really submitting to God. H.B. Charles says it like this, submission has nothing to do with that person and it has everything to do with God. Submission has nothing to do with that person, but it has everything to do with God. Your ability to submit really comes down to trust can you really trust God with this? Can you really trust God that he is working all things out, even your suffering, for your good and for his glory? I know when I fight it, what I'm really wanting to do is to be in control. I desire to be the sovereign ruler over my own life. It's the same, it's the same thing as, go, go back to the garden. The argument that, that, that Satan makes to Eve, what is it? You want to be in control? Eat this fruit. You want to be like God? 
Our unwillingness to submit reveals our own desire and our own heart in wanting to be the master of our own destiny and removing God from from his rightful place. The way we trust and submit honors God, but how does it complete the command in verse 17 to love the brotherhood? Again, if you will, just imagine you're a first century Christian who is a slave, and you're a slave who is acting rebelliously against your master, whether in your actions or your attitude. He knows you have this new faith because he knows his house, and he knows all the other people in the house who have this new faith as well, and your actions cause him to punish those other people with that same faith. Is that loving the brotherhood well? Is it loving the brotherhood well that your actions cause other people to have lashes? Is that loving the brotherhood well? Is it loving the brotherhood well that you find yourself to be a, a new Christian as a slave and your, new, your slave owner is also a Christian, but you're rebellious and now he doesn't know how to act in this situation and he loses control of his house? Is that loving the brother well? It's not. Not submitting to the master would have negative effects on your brothers and sisters in Christ. For us, claiming the name of Jesus and not doing our job well, claiming the name of Jesus and not submitting to your parents, claiming the name of Jesus and and not honoring those around us damages the testimony of Jesus. It damages our testimony to the lost world. And not just that, there's people around you living for God's glory, and when you're sinning in public, when you're acting rebelliously with your attitude in your job, it's damaging their testimony as well. It all matters. Look at verse 18 again, and we're, look at, we're gonna look at our attitude and submission. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The the real question we should be asking is, for these first century slaves, what degree or what is the extent that they are to submit to their master with all respect? Is it just when they're good? For us. What degree are we to submit to our bosses? Youth, to what degree are you to submit to your teachers or to your parents? Just when they're good? As a household slave, it would have been a great life to have a good master. There's cases where they grant their freedom. There's cases where they have uh, relationships such where they grant their freedom and the slave actually wants to go back into slavery, believe it or not, because the master's so good and their life is so good under the master's house. There's some instances where the master grants their freedom and then adopts them so that they would have a portion in the inheritance. I'm saying it's easy to serve that master. But we find two types of masters here, the just and the unjust. We've all had 
good bosses, and it's easy to support and submit to them even when we don't like their decisions. When I lived in Ennis, I had a good boss. I had a good pastor. I didn't agree with a lot of what he did, but he was such a good man, and those decisions he made were out of what I believe a pure heart to follow Jesus. It was easy for me to submit to him and to go to bat for him and to defend decisions I didn't support because he was such a good man. It was easy. It's easy and enjoyable to serve a good boss, even when things are hard. And I hope you've experienced a leader like this. I hope you've experienced parents like this. But that might not be the situation you're living in. And here comes the unfun stuff. As the slaves were called to submit to the unjust masters, we too are to submit to bad bosses. We don't get to opt out of submission just because we don't like them. We don't get to opt out of submission just because we claim they're evil. The character of the master was not grounds for the slave to disobey the master. A rebellious attitude and actions for Peter, they were totally out of the question. The only legitimate reason a slave should deny a master is if the command given was to do evil or broke the laws of God. Thank God we are not slaves in the first century. Thank God we're born in America. By being born here, you are privileged to rights, and we don't have to stay in bad work situations. We have freedom. We get to do something about it. We get to leave. But in your leaving, how are we to leave? Does this, do these principles now not apply? No, we leave with all respect, honoring them even though they're unjust. If they're doing something illegal or immoral, you've got the ability to report them. First century Jews, they didn't. We do. If they're doing something illegal or immoral, report them to their proper authorities. But in so doing, submit with all honor and respect. Don't go out and malign them. We don't get to ignore their authority while their authority's over us. We do get to speak truth, though, because we're in a totally different situation. And I'm sure, you know, we're, as I was reading this, I was thinking back to times in my life, different bosses, different teachers, all that kind of stuff. And if in your recollections of bosses and supervisors, and teachers, they've all been bad. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your attitude. And maybe you should think deeply about your attitude at work because it's not becoming of a believer in Christ. and you should repent. There's no room in the household of faith for us to live this way because we're living for the kingdom and the cost is so great. The cost will be the souls of those you work with. The cost will be the souls of your bosses because they know what those Christians are like. 
You must repent because the way we work reflects on the God we worship. There's no area of your life that's not worship. There's no action in your life that God does not consider as worship. Your work is worship. I'll go out on a limb and say, if you're one who's always struggled submitting to teachers and coaches and supervisors, more than likely, you have always struggled in your attitude submitting to God. Just a quick note to parents. Unteachable kids and uncoachable kids become unemployable adults. Let their teachers reprimand them. Let their coaches coach them. Don't swoop in. Because more importantly than them being unemployable adults, we want them to be employed by God working for his mission and for his cause and for his purposes. And if they're unable to submit to human authority, what makes you think that they'll ever submit to divine authority? And you're creating a situation that teaches them that they don't have to submit. We want children who are sensitive to the authority of God in their lives. Submission, listen to this. Submission is ultimately an issue of worship. Is that true, church? It's not a fun one to say it's true, but it's true. Let's look at verses 19 through 20. The attitude that finds favor. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's hard to live and serve someone who's unjust. Peter understands what he's asking. I mean, read the book of Acts. What happens to Peter? He is unjustly persecuted. He's unjustly beaten. He's unjustly thrown into prison. He understands what it means to be unjustly treated. And when someone lives in, in this reality, Peter, he, he talks about their situation and he calls their experience sorrow. And it's not just sorrow. He compounds their sorrow with suffering. Some of you are living in a situation that's sorrow compounded with suffering. And living in hurt physically and emotionally, it's all consuming. I've never been a slave, but I've been hurt. I've been in bad work environments. And, and, and you know, it just gnaws at you. It becomes what you think about all the time. It eats you up inside. But when we're mindful of God and suffer in submission to God in both our attitude and our actions, this is a gracious thing to God. This is an honorable thing to God. Look at James 1, 2. It'll be on the screen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that by testing your faith, it produces steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I'm just going to put a pin in that just real quick. 
I think so many people's faith falls apart at the first instance of suffering because they were never told that in Christ they were going to suffer. Look at verse 1. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds. The, prop, the, the, the popular Christian teaching of the day says that if you're in Christ's will, you will not suffer. The Bible tells us differently. When we're in Christ's will, it's likely we will suffer. So when that first real suffering comes, when we lose someone we love, when we lose a job, when, when something happens, don't be surprised. It's not if you suffer, it's when you suffer. But count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet suffering of various kinds, for that by testing your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses your suffering to do his sanctifying work in you. God uses our suffering to conform us into the image of his son. And while suffering's not fun, God doesn't waste it. Look at this. He tells us he doesn't. We get a credit for it. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin or, and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God has a credit. God has a reward for those who suffer and those who endure. Now, we may never see that on this side of the cross or on, on this side of the, the, the grave, rather. When we, when we cross over into eternity, he tells us that there's a credit, there's a reward. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter is acknowledging the reality of suffering as a slave that the people are facing. The master had the ability to beat or give lashes when they had done wrong. But Peter's over here, he's like, what benefit is it when you do something wrong and you get beaten for it? But if you endure being beaten for not worshiping the, the family idols... There's a credit for that. There's a reward for that. That's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. Or if your master has a way of cheating people, and you know that Proverbs tells you that it's a sinful, God hates unbalanced scales, so that you, you go and you fix the scales so that, they, that, so that he deals rightly with people, and you're beaten for it. This is an honorable and gracious thing in the sight of God. In the eyes of God, suffering in these ways are honorable. In the eyes of God, suffering in these ways, there's a credit. But if we're beaten for nothing outside of existing in the master's space and treating him with honor and respect, this is an honorable thing in the sight of God. Enduring out of love for God in your attitude and in your submission comes with favor in God's eyes. Again, we're not slaves. We're not being beaten by your masters. If you're getting beaten by a master, come talk to me. We live in America. We can take care of this. Like, this is not where we live. But you might be a student or an employee, and the principle still applies to you. You might be a student who gets an unjust grade or given an assignment that requires you to 
support Darwinism or some LGBTQ stuff or uh, want you to define marriage like against God and you decide, you know what? I'm going to define marriage how, I wanted to, how the Bible defines marriage. I'm going to follow God as God has showed me. That's a gracious thing in the eyes of God, but you're also going to receive a zero for it. You're probably going to fail for it. And that's a, that suffering that you receive that your GPA is going to get hit, it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. And here's the thing. Take a stand for what you believe in. But Christians, stop whining. America, when, when Christians face suffering of the most minute kind, we just cry about it. How about planting our feet firmly on the word of God, declaring what's true, and acting honorably with respect? Take that zero. You're going to be honored for it. I remember um, in high school, I had a substitute teacher in English. And in a small town, you had the same substitutes all the time. My, my town was smaller than this. And he knew I was a Christian from prior discussions. And on this day, he corners me in front of the class and he starts questioning me about, about God and acting like I'm stupid about believing in God. And I start trying to defend my position and he's just talking over me. He's got, I mean, he's older. He's got a, all the, the quick atheist quips and the things that they feel like are hard for Christians to answer. And I'm trying my best. And finally I have enough and I tell him to stop talking to me. And he just presses in harder. And I respond wrongly. I get angry and aggressive and tell him what I'm going to do to him if he doesn't get out of my face. What do you think that did to my testimony in that class? Where I'm trying to live as a believer. I defame the name of God. What do you think I did in the eyes of that unbeliever? I defame the name of God. I, I hurt my testimony. I hurt the testimony of Jesus. If he would have sent me to the office and I would have got expelled for threatening a teacher, would that have been a gracious thing in the sight of God? No. Had I got expelled or sent to the office for defending my faith, that would have been a gracious thing in the sight of God. A, if you get fired for sharing your faith at your job, that's a gracious thing on the side of God. If you, if you get fired or if you get reprimanded for not fudging on the numbers like your uh, boss wants you to, that's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. If you get fired or you get something in school happens to you because of your faith, we don't live in the first century. We have a thing we paid for called the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious uh, Liberty Council, and we as Southern Baptists contribute to them, and they have lawyers on deck to send to us to fight that battle. But there's going to be a measure of suffering in the, in the waiting. And we have to suffer with respect and with honor. Finally, look at verse 21. Suffering in service to Christ. For this you have been called. The question should be, for what have I been called? Because Christ 
also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. This is, we want to apply WWJD to everything but this. For what have we been called? To suffer as Christ has suffered and walking in his example. Jesus is known as the man of suffering, the man of sorrows. He suffered at the hands of evil men. Jesus, before he came to earth, he was God. He reigned in heaven. He's the second person of the Trinity. He had all the privileges and all the rights of God. And he set his rights and he set his privileges aside, became a human, and was born in a manger. He was born in animal stalls. This perfect one lived a perfect life and died for you and me. He chose suffering for the glory of God so that he could bring us eternal life. As Christians in America, we have rights and we have privileges. But in service to the king, in service to Christ, it might call us to set these privileges down. It might call us to walk in suffering as Christ has walked in suffering. Jesus tells us, they rejected me. Don't be surprised when they reject you. But it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God when we suffer for the king and the advancement of his kingdom. You're suffering on earth. If you endure, will not be wasted. It will be rewarded. And because you're free in Christ, you can go wherever he leads. We, you, we, we get to walk in, the, in the, the pattern that Christ walked. But we, we have this easy believism. They, people say, I pray, pray the prayer of salvation, and life will be rainbows. That doesn't sound anything like Jesus' evangelical call in Matthew 16, 24. It says this, If you would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you would come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Peter, when in John 21, you'll, you'll, you'll remember the story. Jesus comes to him after his resurrection and he's bringing him comfort. He's telling him to feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Do you, Peter, do you love me? And after that whole interaction's done and he restores Peter, he lets Peter know what's coming. He says, there will be a day where you go where you don't want to go. They will lead you where you don't want to be led. And he tells Peter there that his walk will be a walk of suffering and a walk of death. But church, 
one of the famous sayings throughout church history is, the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. The blood of the saints, it's the seed of the church. God does not waste our persecution and he uses our persecution, he uses our suffering to advance his kingdom in a way that we could never understand. So here's the call this morning. If you don't know Jesus, follow Jesus. It's beautiful. You'll be in his hands. It is a call to suffer, but it's also a call of joy. It's a call of salvation. But if you're here today, the call as a believer is to follow and you have to decide right now that you're going to follow wherever he leads, come what may, or when the time suffering comes, if you've not already decided in your heart, you're not gonna lead the, the you're not gonna walk the path that's hard. If you will, bow your heads with me.